Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. And uh, da dharma is the topic of the talk. <laughs> dharma is the, referring to the teachings of uh, the Buddha, in one sense. And also it's referring to uh, the truth about the way things are. So I'll be trying to explain a little bit about uh, some of the background of the practice that we're doing and overall all of it falls into the category and uh, Eightfold Path that's described as a wise view, right view. So kind of honing our, our understanding, the background of what it is that we're doing here and why. So dharma is actually something very natural in some ways. You could say it's, uh, it's nature itself. It's something that can be observed by all of us in our experience. And something that if we understand it and if we are aligned with that, then we can live a much freer, happier life. If we live out of alignment with that, if we don't understand that, then there is often a lot of stress and friction and difficulty that we have. So I got interested in these uh, teachings and practices when I was quite young and uh, started studying in uh, college Buddhism, but then got a little frustrated with that approach, you know, intellectual approach to these, uh, these ideas. And I realized, like, oh, I want to actually know this in a different way. And I was right. There's actually different ways of knowing things. You know, Pascal alluded to this in the beginning. So there's ways of knowing things through the mind, where you can give a talk, repeat something, uh, conceptually understand. But there's another way of knowing that's more of uh, embodied understanding. You know, that's um, on a level that's... Uh, kind of rewiring and works faster than words. It's below the level of thought that's going on. So I stumbled into a practice center, uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. I learned about uh, meditation there and then started coming here um, for a first retreat I did when I was in uh, college. And 10 day retreat in the summertime, actually right around this time of year, probably 1989 I think. And then I liked it so much, I came back again the next fall when I finished uh, college and I did a three-month retreat that they have here. And I thought I would be all set after that. I would have learned everything. That's a whole semester devoted to meditation, you know. But it turned out there was even more to learn, so I actually stayed and continued on this uh, path. Stayed here for about a year, practicing meditation. And um, partly what was inspiring to me about that is that uh, the teachers who are here... Um, many of whom are the founders of the center, I felt like, you know, they knew something that I wanted to know. You know, they knew something that I wanted to know and uh, their knowing was a different quality of knowing than the reading of books or than the professors of Buddhism who I had encountered. Uh, and that was that what I wanted to get. I wanted to get it here. You know. 
And because what they were saying was that the way they got that understanding was by doing this uh, sitting and walking and silent meditation stuff. I was like, all right, I'm going to do that. So, uh, so I followed that path. And it's an experiential task that we're doing here. You know, so here I'm using words to talk to you. Uh, but actually what we're learning through the practice, what we're learning in all of the meditation is a, an experiential understanding you know, that's deeper than the level of words. So concepts still can be helpful. So uh, one of the ideas in the Buddhist psychology is that what we usually think about as our life is made up of six different experiences that arise in rapid succession. So everything in your life can be categorized in some way as consciousness meeting an object through one of your sense doors. And the sense doors are six in this model. So the five that you learned in kindergarten, so seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing. And then the sixth sense door is the mind. So the mind itself is considered a sense organ for this purpose. And just as the eye receives sights, the ear receives sounds, nose will take in smells when there's consciousness present, and so on, the mind receives impressions of thoughts, images, memories. But all of these are actually just part of the passing show of experience. So same as there's a sight and then there's a sound and there's a body sensation, there's a thought also. And that is like each of these different sense experiences, something that changes. There's no permanency in any of these sense doors. There's a flow of experience that shifts and changes kaleidoscopically. And you could say that it all is just unfolding. It's all just happening. Uh, And that's what we call our life. So in our training in meditation, we're developing the ability to see what's actually true. So, you know, I said this stuff just now, and uh, you can check it out yourself. And this practices that we're doing are uh, tools that you can use to actually see if this is true. So I said that nothing stays in any of the sense experiences. Is that true? You can see. Is there a thought that lasts forever, for a long time? Is there body experience that lasts in the exact same way forever? Is there a sound that lasts forever? Check it out and see. So what we're starting to do here is, uh, in the first step, is actually to collect the attention, you know, collect and steady the attention of the mind. So why can't we see these things if they're actually true? Probably because we're not really paying attention. And we actually don't have the capacity to pay attention uh, because we're vastly distracted by so many different things. So we start out in this practice, we're using the breath, the body, sound, something as kind of an anchor for our attention. And through bringing the attention back again and again, we develop the capacity to be collected, to be concentrated. And when we apply that with awareness, with mindfulness to what's happening in the moment, then we can start to see some of these things clearly, much more clearly for ourselves. 
So some people are asking in the group some questions about, you know, well, what about like emotions or thoughts or different things? Like at the moment, it sounds like what you're telling us is to just uh, see that they're there, but then not to really attend to them. So in the beginning of practice, we do try and keep it pretty simple. So with breath, body, sound. But gradually, as we're able to, we do want to open up and everything that happens in your human experience is actually a worthy object of attention to know, to explore, to understand. And the relationship that we develop towards thoughts and emotions particularly is very different than the usual experience that we have habitually in our everyday life. So it would take a little bit of explaining and uh, quite a bit of practice for most people to even get a sense of what that relationship could be like. So one of the things that we're trying to understand is like, well, what is the, what is true about uh, ourselves, about our lives, uh, about what is actually happening in this moment? So the instructions are pretty simple in the beginning here to connect with the experience of breathing and then notice when something else is happening, thinking, sound, right, coming back. But it's not that easy to do, is it? Like there's all kinds of things that seem to be thwarting your uh, ability to do this. Now actually all of these are also possible objects for investigation. So uh, everything that seems to be thwarting is also fair game, you could say. When you pay attention to what's happening, you know, it's like, oh, I actually spent a lot of time in this area that we could call the field of thought. Has anyone noticed that today? Spent a lot of time thinking about stuff, remembering stuff, planning stuff, fantasizing about stuff, right? uh, figuring out stuff. So it's really interesting even just to notice that, like how much time we spend in this field of the mind. And it's not actually that thinking is bad or a problem or uh, it can be very useful in its place. But the question is like, what is our relationship to thinking? Do we even know that we are thinking when we are thinking? And what is the relationship particularly to this field of the mind and its objects in relationship to all the other experiences uh, of the body. So for example, uh, thought may have been one of the things that is coming up for you. Um, Another one may have been some experience of physical discomfort in the body, colloquially known as pain. So probably if you sit here for some length of time, the body will become uncomfortable. Even if you started out in a position that seemed pretty comfortable and you thought like, okay, this is a good posture. It's gonna be good this time, right? It starts out like that and then eventually something happens, an itch or some tension or pressure somewhere, something like that. 
So actually this too can be something that we can bring attention to and is part of this exploration of understanding this mind-body system. So in this practice, what we want to do is bring our attention to that experience of pain, you could say. But we're hoping to be able to see that very clearly just as it is. So usually say something will happen and there'll be a twinging happen. And then a thought will occur, like, oh, my foot hurts. And then maybe I should move my foot. But I think they said to sit still. I wonder when the bell will ring. Hasn't it been 45 minutes already? I should probably move it or it'll start to hurt more. I remember that last time my foot started to hurt. It hurt for a long time. Maybe it's my shoes. Maybe I should get different shoes. Anyway, right, so this is an example of uh, the kind of thing that happens. And meanwhile, actually, the initial twinge is long gone, right? But we're actually inhabiting, you know, this world of the mind that is, uh, has been uh, created. So it's, it's really helpful to discern between them. So even that, just to be able to see and to know directly what is the sense experience that's happening. Like, this is a physical experience, and this is the mental experience. Uh, it's something that most of us are not used to doing. And so then, what happens is that we live in the world of the mind a lot of time. And it's not always a good thing. So my favorite story about this from uh, Dharma practice is a, a Zen story of someone who goes into a cave, they paint a picture of a tiger, and then they look at it and they go, ah, tiger, and they run out of the room screaming. Right? <laughs> so what happened in that? You know, like there was no tiger in the cave. They made up the tiger. Right? But they forgot they made it up they believed in it, and then they reacted to it as if it was real. So I invite you to observe if anything (coughs) at all similar to this happens in your mind when you're sitting here. So you're sitting here quietly breathing, no one is actually bothering you, and then some thought will occur to you about uh, something or another. And the thought is just a thought, but if you uh, take complete belief in that, then you might kind of start to go down that path of concocting more and more complex kind of cave paintings of that scenario, of what you're gonna do when you leave here, uh, about uh, what happened in the past, about an argument that you had with someone, so on and so forth. Until at some point you remember like, oh yeah, I'm meditating, right? and then come back, connect with the breath, whatever. So what we're doing here is observing these tendencies of mind, because it's not just happening here. You know, it's not like you packed a different mind for the meditation retreat, you know. Whatever you see here are habits of mind, tendencies of mind that play out in your regular life, you know and that impact your experience of what you think is true, of how you respond to people, and so on. 
So you also notice as you start to uh, pay attention in this realm of thought that a significant number of these thoughts, maybe even we could say most of these thoughts, uh, there is some relationship to uh, a story of me in it. So there's thoughts about what's happening to me, what other people think of me, how this past event impacted me, what I might do in the future. So notice that the star of the show of all of your thoughts, significant one of your thoughts is actually uh, you, yourself. And it's helpful to notice also what that does to our system, sort of how that plays out differently. Meaning that there could be some time in which there's just the flow of experience of breath, of sound, of different things happening. And then there starts to be concocted a story, uh, the thoughts of me. And it could even be like, uh, I'm doing this well or I'm doing this badly. So that's an immediate story of me seems related to meditation. It seems on track because it's about retreat or something. But actually we're still in the realm of thought. We have connected and completely sort of started a mural about me as the meditator, doing well or doing badly. And then we start believing in that story and creating and so on and so forth. So the reason that we use this labeling technique, thinking, planning, so on, is not because we're trying to kind of whack them all on the thoughts and get rid of them, but it's actually to help us have some awareness of thinking as a process that arises on its own. And something that arises as part of the mind-body system. And to give us some opportunity to see how this plays out for better or for worse uh, in our experience to see how much of our thoughts are actually true, helpful, useful, and to see to what extent they're actually uh, taking us into some imaginary world, which we spend a lot of time in. So also when there are thoughts, there are often uh, related emotions that might arise. And also in the group, some people are asking about emotions like, well, you haven't said anything about them, but you know, how do you deal with them in the meditation? And emotions also are part of the human experience. So uh, we'll, we'll talk uh, as we go through the next day and a half more technically about how to do that. But basically, we can also bring our awareness to the experience of an emotion, whatever that emotion is. So it could be sadness, it could be excitement, uh, it could be anger, something like that. It could be even tendencies of mind that seem otherwise like uh, obstacles, like a restlessness of mind, for example. So we can actually bring our awareness to that experience and get to know it. So get to know it directly, not our ideas about it, not in some distant way, not by theorizing about it, but actually by dropping our awareness directly into our experience in the moment, in the body, in the heart, in the mind of what this is like. 
so what is sadness like? What is anger like? What is restlessness like? And the metaphor can be like, if I stick my hand into this cup of water to know if it's hot or cold, I'll know directly through the experience of sensation. Not because I think about it like, well, 20 minutes ago I got it out of the hot water urn, so probably now it's warm. So it's not like theorizing about it, but just knowing directly through sinking, in this case, the fingers into the water. But in the case of emotion, it's bringing your awareness directly into your experience. And it's not always easy. So, you know, this practice is called insight meditation. And the one of the uh, jokes about it is that you gain a lot of insight, especially in the beginning of practice, but a lot of it is bad news. Because <laughs> basically a lot of stuff that you have been uh, avoiding or otherwise distracting yourself from seeing, suddenly you have to sit here in this hall with like no headphones and uh, like no uh, TVs and no ability to check cell phones and no one talking to you and like it starts to unfold. You know, it starts to unfold in some way that can be challenging. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So beautiful, interesting things can appear and so can challenging things. Aspects of the physical body, aspects of the mind, memories, emotions, everything. So here's where, you know, meditation is actually a very courageous activity. You know, it looks kind of like you're just sitting there doing nothing, but it's actually a very brave thing to do. To come even for one period and say, let me sit here and be with whatever it is that arises. Do my best to be whatever it is that's here. whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, whether it's boring, you know, let me be here with this. Let me know this as intimately as I can. So the purpose of knowing experience, knowing all of this as closely as we can, is actually not just so we can have a fuller, richer life, although that is a part of what will happen. It's not just so that you will be a better listener and a better friend, although that will also happen. It's not just so you will remember where you put your car keys, although that could also happen. (laughs) But actually something uh, can happen on the level of understanding how reality unfolds that can create some uh, very profound changes in ourselves, a sort of rewiring of ourselves that can allow us to be much more at ease with ourselves, with others, uh, with the world. So one of the the Buddha's descriptions about what we can discover from paying attention to what happens in this world of changing experience is uh, something they called the, the three characteristics of existence. So 
So this is not like ultimate truths, but they're actually aspects of experiential reality that we can pay attention to that can help us to kind of pry open the otherwise seemingly solid box of how things are. So the first one is about noticing uh, the flow of change. So noticing how there is a constant shifting and changing of every experience. So even the things that we think are solid, like even one step, actually is made up of many different sensations. Even one breath that we think we understand and we know already, so why should we pay attention to another? Each one is actually completely unique in some way. So what we're shifting also is our attitude about this. Because if you pay attention to how you are in your regular life, there's so many things that we take for granted usually. And you see this here too. So like, oh, I know what oatmeal tastes like. I don't need to taste that. Or I tasted the first bite. I don't need to taste the second bite. So see how often that is an attitude that we have towards uh, experience, towards life. And we have that even towards people that we know, right? Our loved ones. Like, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to do. I know who you are. It's not actually true. And it is also a very, like, static and kind of a sleep way to live. We notice this most when people are acting this way towards us, then it's more apparent, you know. When someone is acting towards us, like they already know what we're going to say, what we're going to do, like they don't really need to pay attention to us. So cutting that attention to see each moment, to see the newness of it, and to notice this aspect of change, of impermanence, the lack of, of... Solidity. So then corollary to the impermanence is that this this lack of solidity means that nothing is any one thing. So I'll give you an example of this uh, table here. So this table has been very useful to me this last day. Uh, could put the cup there and this little striker and so on. But at one point this table was not a table. So this table was a tree. And before that it was actually probably a seed somewhere. And then different conditions came together, water, sunlight, grew from a seed into a sapling, into a big tree. Then for a while it was a tree, maybe inhabited by birds and squirrels and so on. At some point someone came and cut it down. We went to the lumber yard. Uh, It was put made into some planks. So then that was the form it was in. A little later it was taken to a woodworking place or a factory, and it's made into this little table or stool. 
Then someone from IMS went out and purchased it, thought it was a good, good looking stool, table, good height. So then here it's been serving for maybe a couple years in that capacity. So temporarily we can say, yes, this is the table, this is a stool, uh, and it's serving its purpose. But if we continue projecting this biography of this table, uh, already there's some nicks in it like this, some cuts, and after a while they probably will decide it's not uh, looking so good or it starts to wobble more than it already is. It's a little wobbly already, right? So then it will maybe be moved to the basement, then after a while it will fall apart, and then it'll get tossed out. It'll end up in some junk heap, rain will come on top of it, will start to disintegrate, turn into pulp, and then return back to the earth. So that's a little story of the, the table here. So at the moment it's a table, but actually it's part of a process. It's part of a long process uh, of life, and it could have started even earlier, and we could continue even further. And each of these points in the process it's being used in a different way. Living beings have a different relationship to it. Now you could actually tell the same story with anything in this room. So you could go at the walls, you could go at this plant, you could go at the zafus, and you know, go back in time, it's all in separate, separate places, separate states. Now temporarily it's here. Even the configuration of ourselves in this retreat is a temporary arising. So about 100 people here, we all came from different places, you know, come together here for a moment, and then here for a little while, and then scattered again. Or could give you some, uh, some we could do some biography of our lunch, for example. So we had some, uh, some quiche, so probably eggs and onions, some vegetables. They were all separate through interaction with some people here who cut them up, got mixed together, got baked. For a moment, that was quiche. But it was not very long that it was quiche. Right? <laughs> so it got sliced up and then uh, taken in by each of us. And now the quiche is still here in the room. Right? <laughs> in some form, <laughs> providing energy for all of us to sit here, listen, right? Some of the quiche maybe is already processed through, it's gone to the toilets, right? <laughs> Becoming part of the sewer system, going back to the earth. Right? So we don't often think about things like this, but it's true, everything is in constant motion and movement. The most important aspect of this to attend to particularly is actually that which we call ourselves. So this kind of biography physically is true of this table. It's actually also completely true of our own physical body. So all the cells in our body have changed since time of our birth. The water that we drink, you know, goes through us creates our blood and our uh, different fluids in our body. I've been told that it takes um, seven days to replenish the supply of liquids in the body. And all of us are three-quarter liquid. 
which is actually the same percentage as the planet. So uh, I came from California, but I've actually been in New England now for seven days, so now I'm sort of made of the same, uh, same water. Right? I've become completely changed. Three-quarter of me is now New England water. Right? And if we stayed here for another week, then all of us would become three-quarter the same, like IMS water, right? in that way. So physically, we're all in flux all the time. And then when you pay attention, actually mentally, it's even more ephemeral. You know, that which we, we call ourselves is a concept, a useful concept, much as table is a useful concept for the moment, but it's not absolutely true. So there's actually no particular thought, no particular emotion that you can find permanency in. So this characteristic is so anatta, like a, there's a, a lack of solidity, there's a lack of permanent self to be found in ourselves and also in any object. Sometimes it's called emptiness when you look at other objects and selflessness in ourself, but it's kind of the same thing. And kind of a corollary of that is seeing this interconnection, you know, the ways in which we're not completely separate from each other or from our environment. And you can't escape from that. And then this final one is actually about uh, dukkha. So the truth of the unsatisfactoriness, the unreliability of phenomenon in experiential life. So if I've made my case well here, then because everything is impermanent, there's no permanent place to rest. There's no permanent refuge to be taken in objects or uh, even in that which we call ourself. And our strategy for happiness usually results in stress because we're seeking happiness from impermanent objects that we would like to be permanent. So we're disappointed when things are not permanent. We're disappointed when things do not act according to our wishes. Including most of all, our own physical body, for example, which is actually just an organic animal entity. It seems a little bit under control, like you can get haircuts and things like that, but uh, even as you get a haircut, it already is growing out in some way, right? That's maybe displeasing to you, right? The aches and pains of the body are inevitable. And even our own mind, you know, we can't control it like we would like to. So there is this strain, this stress, this uh, unsatisfactoriness, this unreliability that we find in our usual relationship to experience when we seek permanent happiness, permanent stability, permanent refuge in anything in experience. So 
So it's helpful to, to recognize the aspect of things not being in our control in that way. I give you as uh, proof of that any sitting that you have had so far or any period of meditation, right? In which probably things did not play out according to your uh, prescribed script for how you would have liked meditation to play out. Like, were you perfectly attentive? Did you achieve a state of blissful peace? Yeah. Did only the thoughts that you wanted to arise, arise? Did only the images you wanted to arise, arise? Did only the sounds come that you wanted to have happen? Was the temperature of your body exactly as you wanted the entire time? So usually the answer to these questions is no. <laughs> you can check it out during the next meditation. Right? And if we, we expect things to be like that, then we're going to suffer more. Right? It's going to be very difficult for us. So our exploration is actually seeing into the nature of what's true about our lives, about experience. So in some ways you're both the uh, lab animal and the scientist. You're like the, the lab, the lab animal and the scientist all together. Right? And whatever it is that we're discovering about ourselves in terms of this process flow uh, is actually true for all living beings. There's a universality that's possible to understand uh, from our seeing the way things are. So hopefully as we can see this more and more, we can also connect with some sense of kindness and compassion for ourselves and for others. Because it's quite a pickle I've described, isn't it? You know? (laughs) All of this stuff flowing through and being dependent on everything and not being in control of stuff. and, And we kind of know it, but we kind of don't, you know? So given that that's the case, we can try to hold ourselves with kindness and then also try to hold others with kindness also. In fact, it's kind of the only response that makes sense. So first day of meditation retreat can seem like a long day. And uh, been a lot of different instructions and done a lot of sitting and walking and sometimes you have doubt about what you're doing here, why you chose to come, are you actually learning anything. Right. So among the things that it's helpful to notice to in the realm of thought, um, I'll particularly highlight that one as something as that uh, it's helpful to note you know, using this noting, like thinking, planning, and so on. So doubt is one of the insidious ones that pulls us off of our exploration. 
So this is not meant to be sort of a culty thing, like you cannot doubt, you must follow, right? (laughs) But you can just reflect for yourself. You decided to come and give it a try here, right? For the weekend, check it out. So since you decided to do that already, you might as well actually do it while you're here. And then you could decide if you want on Monday that it was all bogus and you're never doing that again, right? But I say the the mind that starts to, you know, uh, think about things and wonder what should I have done differently or wonder if this technique is good or maybe I should have gone with different teachers. Yeah, these ones don't seem quite as deep and profound as these other ones or they're not wearing the right spiritual clothes. They're like, you know. So notice that, you know, that kind of uh, realm of thought whether or not it's true, uh, is like uh, something that pulls you out of the direct experience of practice in which you could actually see whether it is true or not that this is useful. So the metaphor that it uses is like, you know, this practice is so experiential, so it's like, it's like eating a meal in some way. You know, you're actually going through the direct experience of it and through eating the meal, then you know, is it nourishing, right? What does it taste like? Is this beneficial? And if you sit there roiling in your doubt, it's kind of like the food is in front of you, but you spend your time looking at the menu, right? And analyzing the menu. You never actually get to actually eating the meal. You know. So thinking about it, well, you know, I don't think that one's so good. There's probably not enough salt in that, or that's probably not too cool. You know, it's, it's right there. Like you could actually eat it and see, <laughs> you know, like taste it, try it. You know. Then if you decide you never want to order that again, you know from your own experience. So this uh, doubt is actually one of the ones that um, plagued the Buddha also in his uh, quest for awakening. And in this statue and many of the statues, you see him sitting here with his hand touching the ground like this. So uh, the story is that he was sitting on the night of his enlightenment and he had this uh, strong desire, this strong aspiration for freedom to be liberated. And while he was sitting there, he was assailed by the armies of Mara, sort of the armies of temptation, of fear, of doubt. And through his uh, meditative training and practice, he's able to sit through the first bunch of armies, which were of tempting him with all the beautiful things he could have, like sex and music and experience, if he forgot about this whole meditation thing, you know, quest. But he sat steady through that. Then the next batch of armies that came through were scary armies, so terrifying visions. You know, armies that, that were like the worst, most horrific things. But he wasn't scared off his seat, and he sat steady through that. And then the final army was this army of Mara, that's the army of doubt. And it actually was a very quiet voice. Who are you to be seeking this quest? Who are you to be awakened? Like, who do you think you are? And this, this moment that is captured in so many of the statues of him touching the ground was his response. So the earth itself bears witness to my right to be here, to be awakened. 
So he touched the ground and at that moment then, the armies were dispelled, vision of Dhamma arose in him, and awakening was attained. So it's a it's a story that's from thousands of years ago and you know you may feel like oh there's some mythological aspect to that maybe maybe not but we all actually experience this you know in our lives it's like what knocks you off your seat you know what knocks you off your seat uh, in your own quest for happiness for awakening for freedom in being steady in whatever it is is your chosen activities in the world. You know, what knocks you off your seat? What knocks you down? So here we have great opportunity to practice. You know, under these conditions of mind-body system, quiet, good conditions for meditation, developing this kind of steadiness of mind, of heart. And you can always remember feeling the ground, even when something feels very strong, difficult, it's like, oh yeah, I too am grounded. I too am supported by the earth. You know, I too am supported by uh, the earth in so many different ways. The quiche, the water, the air, right? It's all there. And no matter how many times we get knocked off, also it's really helpful to remember, you know, we can wobble back up. So there used to be these toys, these like, Weebles, I think they were they're like round bottom toys. I remember when I was a kid. You could push them down and then they like wobble back up. Right? <laughs> so if this story didn't uh, inspire, you can remember the weebles. Right? <laughs> so however many times you get knocked down, whether it's by sleepiness or drowsiness or get sucked into the same story again and again, you can always come back up. Right? And that's really the practice. You know, as many times as you can over and over again. And each time is not actually a failure, each time is an awakening. Each time is building your strength, building your ability to be present and to be free. So I offer these uh, reflections of Dhamma for you. So why don't we sit together just for a moment. remembering our aspiration for our practice, connecting with all those who that will benefit. May we all develop a steadiness of heart and mind to see into the nature of things.
So next is time for dinner meditation. So enjoy your meal. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.